Turn into your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. Notice the title I put on the screen. It said, Slaves and Masters? Question mark. That's an awkward topic, isn't it? Okay. Um, so, to be honest, if there was one passage in Ephesians I'd be tempted to skip and not talked about, it would be Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Why? Well, it deals with slaves and masters. Particularly in our culture today. Um, so, you've heard me say this before, but today in particular, I really have two different audiences in mind as we speak from the word. Audience number one, maybe you are either a Christian who's struggling with your faith or a a person in here who has not yet become a believer and you really struggle because you've heard that, hey, the Bible is patriarchal. The Bible is, is colonial. The Bible is full of stuff that has oppressed people. Slavery, masters. And so... For you, if you're part of that audience today, I want to show you from the scriptures uh, a kind of a biblical perspective, a a way of thinking about how the Bible talks about slavery and understand um, that it's, it's contrary to what you're hearing today in our culture. It's actually that Christianity that's responsible for abolishing slavery. And I'll try to demonstrate that to you. And my point with this is not to be political. It's not to do anything of that sort. My point for you is if you're struggling with wanting to be a Christian because of what you've been hearing about Christianity and how it's being disparaged as this oppressive regime that's a a tool of the patriarchy to hold people down and oppress them, then maybe you would consider the truth claims of the Bible. Okay, So that's audience number one. Audience number two are those of us who are already believers and have come to grips with, we have a basic confidence in the scriptures. And for, to be honest, most of us, if we're in that position, we're going to read this and we're going to see slaves and masters. And we're not even going to think about that. And we generally just go straight to employer-employee relationships. And that's where we'll end up here because there are principles there from the passage that we're going to look at that deal with employee-employer relationships But that's not what the text says. The text says slaves and masters. And so we're trying to be intellectually honest and because we're trying to preach the text. So we'll get to the application from that perspective. But we're going to go through a little bit of apologetics and a little bit of trying to establish a reason why if you're struggling with your faith or you're tempted to not embrace the faith because of slavery in the Bible, that hopefully we give you some some hooks to hang that on. So given that, let me, uh, let me start by reading the text and then we'll have a word of prayer and then we will jump right in. Ephesians chapter six, verses five through nine. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleaser, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. 
rendering service with a with goodwill with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whoever whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, that is to say a slave, or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, this is a challenging text for us. It's a challenging text for many, maybe even people here who are struggling with their faith or are considering the truth claims of the scriptures. Lord, I would ask that you would give us clarity and a perspective that meets your worldview, your standard. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to be godly in that way. Lord, then help us to glean important principles of how to be a good employer or an employee. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So audience number one, non-Christians are Christians who struggle with the scripture's teaching about slavery. So let's, let's start with some facts about slavery because whenever we use the word slavery, that's a bigger topic than what we might think of because it's, it's, it's actually huge. And does anybody know where the term slave came from? Anybody? Did you ever hear of Slavs? Who are the Slavs? Those are Eastern European people. Did you know that in the West, slaves weren't first Africans? They were Eastern Europeans. And the term slave literally comes from the word Slav. So the way, because of our history in America, we normally associate slavery with African Americans. Right? Well, that wasn't always the case. But anyway, slavery is endemic to humanity. As soon as the fall happened, it wasn't long till slavery came in. This is not a new phenomenon. This has been a phenomenon since the beginning of human history. Slavery is endemic. And I'm saying this because a lot of you here, particular maybe who don't know Christ, who are considering the truth claims about the scriptures, you've probably been told that slavery started in 1619 with Americans bringing slaves to their shores. And that's just historically not true. Slavery has always been wrong and bad, but it's also been allowed and has been endemic to all of human history. That doesn't excuse American slavery, and that's not my intent here. It's just I don't want you to think the scriptures are responsible for slavery. The scriptures are actually responsible for the overturning of slavery, and we'll talk more about that momentarily. Also, slavery has taken many, many different forms. So when you hear the term slave, you may have an image. And that image is probably partially true. But there are all sorts of different forms of slavery. And the worst and the most vile and evil kind of slavery was called what we might call kidnap slavery. Kidnap slavery was literally, if you were a slaver or a kidnapper in New Testament terms, you would go out searching for people and then you would enslave them and make them work for you. That's kidnap slavery. That even happened in the U.S. to white people, say in San Francisco, a ship would come in, they would pay a bar to get somebody drunk and then they would 
kidnap them and they would wake up on a ship and they would have to do so many years of service to get off that ship. So there's this kidnap slavery. And let, let, does, the scriptures actually are really strong about this. They, the Old Testament forbade kidnap slavery outright. And the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.10, basically says a characteristic, a kidnapped slaver, a kidnapped, excuse me, not a kidnapped slaver, but a kidnapped slaver, that's a sign of being an unbeliever. It's that vile and that evil. There was also war capture slavery. In the ancient Near East, if you went to war and you were captured by the people that you were warring against, you would be enslaved. A little bit of a disincentive for war, right? Now, if you were attacked by another city-state close by and they beat you, you would probably be enslaved as a war capture. There was also indentured servitude. Indentured servitude, there was a lot of actually white settlers to the United States who came over from Europe as indentured servants or slavery. It's a form of slavery. They literally signed a contract that said, I will work for you for X amount of years, and after I do that, you will give me my freedom, and that was the way they paid their passage to the new world. I took, I took a deep dive on slavery, so you're going to hear some really interesting trivia about this right now. In Rome, there were actually people who climbed the social ladder through slavery. Now you go, what? So literally, you could, if you were, say, a, a low-level or a non-Roman citizen, you could sell yourself into slavery to a upper crusty Roman person and then after a certain amount of years they would free you and you would be a Roman citizen and not only would you be a Roman citizen you would have lived and mingled with that upper crusty class of Romans and you would be a part of their society really strange form of slavery so that was a kind of a in that was a voluntary sense but you could become an indentured slave because you had debts that you couldn't pay. So there's all sorts of different versions of slavery. And there was, even in the Hebrew Old Testament, if you were a slave and you were a Jewish person, the law said you could only be a slave or an indentured servant for at most seven years. And then you'd be freed. And under Jewish law, if you got punched by your, or mistreated by your, your master, you would, like if they broke a tooth, that was enough to make you go free. So the slavery piece is not all our picture of the antebellum South, right? It's a very, very multi, multifaceted, strange history. Um, and another strange thing you could do in the Old Testament is if you were a Hebrew person and you were an indentured servant, that kind of slave in Israel, and you were about to be freed, but you loved your master, you could literally say to them, okay, I want to become your bond slave. And then what you would do is you would go to their door and they would take an ice pick and all and they would drive it through your ear into their doorpost and pierce your ear. And that was a practice that said, okay, you've been a great master to me and I want to become your slave for the rest of my life. Okay, very, very strange, but different picture of slavery. And then, and, and this is still in existence today, 
It was sexual slavery, right? It was sexual slavery. Now, I don't know if you know this, but it exists in the United States today. It exists all around the world today. There's sexual slavery. There's sexual exploitation. There's exploitation of children, exploitation of young women, young boys for sexual purposes. I don't know if you know this, but the Super Bowl is one of the highest occurrences of that kind of stuff happening. As much as I love American football, the Super Bowl is where a lot of that junk and evil, vile stuff happens. So it's a reality today, even in post-Civil War United States and all around the world. So slavery took all sorts of different forms. So here's the point I'm starting to get at, though, in this fact number three. Rather than being the source of slavery, the Judeo-Christian West was actually the first culture to abolish slavery. It's because of Christianity that slavery was abolished. And I'll do more to talk about that very, very quickly here. Now, let's not candy coat our history as Americans, right? We have, an, that's probably what I would consider our founding sin as a country, was our participation in slavery and the slave trade. And what was particularly pernicious about American slavery is that it, was, it, it became racially based, Right? Remember what we said the founding, the word slave came from? It came from Slavs, right? Eastern Europeans were the first slaves for the most of the Western European world. And it was the Arab world, North Africa and the Arab world that did most of slavery in Africa initially. And then it became a racial issue in the United States. And what was particularly evil about it is that people started to try to use the Bible to justify it. And that's what particularly is evil about. And sadly, there were Christians who went along with it. Sadly, there are currently more slaves in the world right now than were ever brought to the United States pre-Civil War. So lest we think this is a thing that's gone away, it's a current problem. So I made a big claim. I made a huge claim. The scriptures, despite the fact that they seem to allow for, and the text that we're going to look at today seems to say, Christians, you work under the system of slavery... Despite that, I made the claim that Christianity is the reason, the Judeo-Christian scriptures are the reason why slavery has been abolished. So let's talk about that for a moment. Let's look at the different ways that the scriptures actually undercut slavery. And I want to use, before I get to the specifics, let me use an illustration for you, okay? Anybody... Disturbed when they read the Old Testament and they see all the polygamy that exists all throughout the Old Testament? Have you noticed that? How many people have noticed polygamy in the Old Testament? Okay, if you've done any reading in the Old Testament, it's there, right? It's all over the place. Why by the New Testament was that gone for the most part? 
because over time, Christian truth or Hebrew and that Old Testament truth sunk into the culture and affected the culture. And over a long period of time, polygamy went away. Because from Genesis 1, we know one man, one woman come together, become husband and wife. Jesus affirms that very same thing in the Gospels. And because that truth slowly over time sunk into the culture, the culture changed over time because of the influence of that, those scriptures. Was it clean? Was it a straight line? No, of course not. But that's the importance of good teaching, good truth, and good theology is over time, it changes you. And that brings up a really interesting question. How, we want to change the culture. We want to bring the culture back to a more Judeo-Christian culture. Do you know how to do that? Be saints and speak up. Live for Jesus. Live holy lives and then be willing to speak up for truth, for biblical truth. And that's what happened. And over time, abolition finally happened in the West. In the West. So let's, let's go then. What is, what, in what ways do the scriptures undercut and over time destroy slavery? Well, think about Genesis 1. God creates man on the sixth day and he says, I'm going to make you in my image. Male and female, he made them in God's image. He made humans to have his image that makes each and every one of you and each and every person in the world precious because we are made in God's image. And that's why you don't murder them. That's why it's okay to eat steak. Right? That's why it's okay to squash that bug because a bug is not made in God's image. And the scriptures are very clear. Why do we not murder? Because we don't destroy God's image on the world. And as soon as you say that, and as soon as your culture embraces that, all of a sudden, no matter how different I look, I'm infinitely valuable. And how can I enslave somebody who is infinitely valuable? Do you see? That starts to undercut slavery. So if you haven't been around Christianity much, this might be new to you. Most of us who have been around the faith for a while are very, very familiar with what I'm about to point out. But if you think about what is the, what is the biggest picture of salvation in the Old Testament? What do you think? It's the biggest picture of salvation in the Old Testament. It has to do with slavery. Hmm. You remember? It's God... Delivering the children of Israel out of what? Slavery in Egypt, right? That's the picture of salvation. So the very people who have a picture of a salvation that is freeing people from slavery are the very people who eventually said to themselves, hmm, something's wrong here. I think we'd better change this. And that's where the abolitionist movement got its impetus. 
The New Testament was very, very clear. First Timothy 1.10, I mentioned this before, but a kidnapped slaver, being a kidnapped slaver is a sign of being an unbeliever. Now, what's really interesting, and I don't have the time to go into this. I've got a brother who's, I was talking to about this. He teaches political philosophy at a Christian university, and he's done a lot of work in the Old Testament, the Old Testament view of politics and things like that. But he, he was mentioning to me a, a writer, and I haven't had chance. It was an expensive book. I'll be honest. I, didn't just, I just couldn't buy it. It was an expensive book. So, but one of the authors who makes the argument that this war capture slavery was a disincentive for people to go to war, right? Why do you allow that? Well, it's part of the culture that you don't destroy right away. But it's a bit of a disincentive to go to war if you go, if I lose, I might be in a salt mine somewhere working for two years before I die a miserable death. Chapter five, oh, chapter five, number five, all Israeli slavery, if you're a Hebrew person, slavery was indentured servitude. And those are very, very different things, right? Indentured servitude is very, very different than what we think of as slavery, where you're chattel property, right? Think about the New Testament. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians. In Christ, every single one of us have equal access to God. That's kind of egalitarian in terms of thinking about slavery. How can I enslave somebody else who, is, who has equal access to God? And then we're going to turn here. So turn to Philemon. In the book of Philemon, Paul never... And I Look, in Rome, 60% of the population was probably slaves. Good reason not to make slaves wear different clothes. Hey, look, there's six of us for every four of them. Not a good idea, right? But Paul's living in the culture saying, look, this is how you survive in this culture where slavery is legal. But he actually kind of hints in Philemon at hinting to Philemon to free the slave Onesimus. He doesn't say it outright. He's not going to get killed for being a seditionist. But he actually implies it. What do I mean? So here's the story in Philemon. In Philemon, the book of Philemon is what we'd call a postcard letter. Okay, it it's literally covers one page of your Bible. And in it, Onesimus is a runaway slave. Okay? Onesimus is a runaway slave. And he happens to run into Paul, and then he becomes a Christian. And lo and behold, not only does he become a Christian, and not only does he run into Paul, but he actually knows Paul's friend, Philemon, who was his owner. So there was a believer who was a Roman citizen who owned a slave. The slave ran away and then runs into Paul. And Paul says, guess what? You need to go back because we're in a legal system, right? We're going to submit to the legal system around us. But so, and he, in a very, very, to me, it's less than subtle way, says, dude, let him go. Have him help me. What do I mean? So, we're going to read 
about half the book, which is not very long, but that's okay. So turn to Philemon, look at chapter, chapter one, look at verse eight. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. This is the runaway slave. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So he's saying to Onesimus, you have to go back and make things right with your slave owner. Now, this is Paul speaking again in 13. I would have been glad to keep him. Sorry, I hope that's not me. In order that he might serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Hint, hint, freedom so he can come work with me for the gospel. I'm not going to make you do it, but it would be a really good thing. Hint, hint. Verse 21, well, 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Look, if you want to be a stickler and if you want to make do the legal thing, I'll pay. I'll take care of it. Look at verse 21. I think this is the, the most subtle hinting. Confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. <laughs> you see? It's kind of cute. How, how do you live in that culture when it's a slave culture? And if he had tried to overturn slavery, what would happen to Paul? And probably wouldn't have gone so well. So, and some of you, and if, if you're here and this, you've been grappling with this, you, some of you here are like, why is he even talking about this stuff? Some, some people, this is in our culture. There are people in our culture today who don't want to embrace Christianity because of the stuff that I've been talking about. So I'm trying to, not only if someone's here in, in that boat, I want to deal with you, but I'm also trying to equip you to have some, a perspective that you can share if you come across a person and so you can share the gospel with them. So when you're, Sharing the gospel with somebody, or if you, you're out there and you're kind of doubting this stuff. Interesting person, Tom Holland, is probably the foremost historian in the, in the West right now. His name is Tom Holland. He's not a believer. Um, he actually left Christianity because he thought Christianity ruined Western society. He was enamored with Greek and Persian culture, his words, not mine. And in his book, Dominion, he describes the fact that he had rejected Christianity, and I still think he has, but he basically says this. He says, when I was studying, and he was doing deep dives, writing thick books on Persian and, and Greek history. And he said, as I continued to do my research, I realized I had no idea like what these Greeks and Persians were thinking. My ethic, my worldview did not come from them. And that started me wondering where my worldview came from. And you know what he concluded after studying history from Persia all the way up to modern history? His conclusion was 
that our culture, the air that we live and breathe in is Christian. Even the fact that there is a term called atheism, that actually comes from Christianity. So some people might say, oh, it's the enlightenment. It's those people that got rid of God who brought about. And Tom Holland says this to them. He goes, where did you get your notion of basic human value? You got that from scripture. Without the Jewish and Christian scriptures, you have no reason to think anybody has intrinsic value. So again, why am I saying all this? For some of you, you're like, just get on with it, move forward. This is important stuff if you want to witness in this culture today. So here's, let me summarize where my heart is for this for, for us. The scriptures nowhere explicitly condemn slavery. However, they create a theological worldview or perspective that leads to the overturning of slavery in the long run. The long process of overturning slavery happened in Europe and Britain first before being finalized in the United States expressly because we embrace the Christian scriptures. Most of the slavery today is in sub-Saharan Africa and in the 1040 window, which is non-Christian areas. So if you're here today, you're here today and you've been hesitant to turn your life over to Christ because of what you've been hearing in the culture. The truth of the matter is, it's because of Christianity that we can live in this free world today. Even the idea of our political system that we live in today, it's fundamentally because of the values that were brought about by the Judeo-Christian scriptures. So we would invite you then to investigate the truth claims of Jesus Christ and turn your life over to Christ so that you can experience true freedom. Here's the irony. The Bible is full of slave and free imagery. Right? And here's what, here's what the scriptures teach. That if you are not in Christ, then you are a slave to sin. So how do you experience true freedom from sin in your life? By, ironically, doesn't say by just embracing Christ. He says, take Christ as your master. Not sin. So you trade one master, sin, for a good master, God, through Jesus Christ. And we would invite you to do that today. If you have questions, I would love to speak with you more about this. Sincerely, I will take as much time as you need to work through this and other issues. If you're doubting the scriptures because of the way our culture is disparaging the scriptures right now, let let us talk with you. Let us talk with you. We would love to engage with you on that. So that's my message for audience number one. Audience number two. Now let's work our way down through the text. Because the truth of the matter is, this is a text about slavery. But there are lots of really interesting principles that don't apply to us directly. But if you think about the worker-employee relationship, right? there's a lot of good principles here for us to live by. So let's do that. So my summary 
for those of us on the audience number two, it's this. Our Christian worldview changes how we function in the workplace. Right? Our Christian worldview changes how we function in the workplace. Well, let's see what he says. We've got to get back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five, uh, 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ or as slaves of Christ. As employees, we don't work just for the company that pays us. We work for God. Right? But you say, but Dave, work's a curse. I hate work. Is work a curse? Was work part of the curse? No. We're going to have work in the eternity. It's not just going to be choir practice. As much as I love to sing, we're going to be doing some work in eternity. That's cool. I don't know exactly how it's going to work. No pun intended. But we're going to be doing work. In fact, when God created man and woman, he placed them on the earth. Genesis 2 said he placed man in the garden to work and keep it pre-fall. So Adam and Eve had jobs. How cool is that? So if you are sitting here and thinking that work is a curse, maybe that's why you're not that great an employee. Fair? God gives us work, and that's part of being human and part of giving us a sense of meaning in our life. One of the worst things we can do for people is keep them from working. Feel useless, meaningless, have too much time on your hands, way too much time to think. Is that a good formula for self-improvement? Not so much. So work is not a curse. And not only that, we work for two masters. We have two employers. We work for God first, and then we work for the employer. Does that change your motivation? So we're all in full-time Christian ministry, right? I just happen to be a volleyball coach. Some of you might be teachers, engineers, widget stampers. I don't know what that means, but you make something, right? Nothing wrong with that. That's noble. It's good to be involved with. But there is an appropriate submissiveness that employees should have to employers, right? Do it with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Oh, if only six weren't there. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. You know, if I could just work hard when the supervisor's watching and it was okay for me to not, really? You want to go there? That would be eye pleasing, right? God calls us to work hard, not just when people are watching. 
Now they're watching all the time anyway, but that's a whole separate issue, right? It's kind of creepy. Doing it as employers or as bond servants of Christ, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from where? Heart. All right. My kids are grown, so I can make fun of teenagers. Sorry, teenagers. Go clean your room. (sighs) Guess what? We can be that way as adults too, can't we? Yeah, yeah, we can. But if I'm working for God, how is that going to change how I work? Look, if we're... Believers in Christ, we should be not the most productive employees, but we should be the most hardworking employees because productivity is sometimes tied to your skill. You could be the worst worker in terms of skill, but you should be the hardest worker in the room or tied with the other Christian that's there. Amen? Because we represent God. We represent Christ. And how we work in the world affects how people view Jesus. Look at verse eight. I love this. Rendering service, seven, excuse me. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Ah, we do it for God. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. And this is actually now talking about employees. He actually talks about employees here. Whether you're a slave or whether you're free, if you do work with a good heart and you'd render service, God is going to pay you back for that. Maybe not in this life, but in the next life. But often in this life. What about employers or masters in this case? Do the same to them. All right, so whenever you see that in the scriptures, you got to go, oh, what is the same? What's that referring back to? And it's not 100% clear, but I think it's actually verse 7, rendering service with a goodwill. Right? So as employers, how many of us have done some management? At least have one person that we've managed and somehow overseen. Okay? Are you serving them? Serious question. Are you serving the people that you're over? Are you doing the same thing that you want them to do back to you? Do do your employees know that you actually care about them and want them to thrive in this job? Fair question. If we're followers of Jesus Christ, how we behave in the workplace ought to be in such a way that unbelieving employees go, there's something different about him or her as my boss. Because he's my boss, but he has a boss, and his name is Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, stop threatening. Right Now, That's dealing with slaves and masters, but is that how you lead? 
Well, I'm going to fire one of you today, but, uh, you know, work hard. <laughs> Is that the best way to lead? I love this. Knowing that he is both their master and yours. Know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. You get that? So those of us who are bosses, we have a boss too, right? And guess what? When God looks down, there's no partiality. Oh, another reason why slavery gets thrown away in Christianity because there's no partiality with God. Serious question. And I, like, I'm not gonna ask you to raise hands because it's not a pleasant topic. Some of us have had to let people go or fire them, right? Have we done that only after we've done our best to help them succeed? Would that be a Christian way to be a boss? I think so. I think so. I've, I've had to do it. I've had to do it. It's not pleasant. But you try and you try and you try to help them before you say, hey, it's time to part ways. Right? It's time to part ways. Our Christian worldview changes how we function in the workplace. So real quick, real quick, just to summarize. If you're here and You've had questions about Christianity because of things like slavery or patriarchy or those kinds of things. We'd love to speak with you, okay? We'd love to give you answers from the scriptures. And we'd love for you to turn your life over to Christ and find true freedom in Jesus. If you're here and you're an employee, represent Christ well. Be the kind of employee that people go, I wanna know why he or she is different. And be a follower of Christ that way. And if, if we're bosses, then be the kind of employee that employers look and employees, excuse me, look up to you and say there's something different about you. Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging and powerful passage. Lord, help us to change our lives. Help us to submit to your will. We love you. We want to represent you well in the world. Pray that you will help us do that today. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.